Welcome to Beyond the Ocean. Here's a clip from today's guest. You break it down to each element that you're trying to do and really focus on the mechanics. And with surfing, that can be hard because even if you get to a really good wave, yeah, you've got to get there. There's got to be swell. (laughs) And then there's the crowd element of waiting your turn. And there's just so many unknowns when you're going out there and you're trying to train versus if you have a wave park, you can go and you can know that there's going to be waves. You're going to get your reps in. Caught my first tube this morning. Sir. Welcome to Beyond the Ocean, the podcast exploring surf parks and the impact of technology on the future of surfing. We speak with technology leaders, investors, operators, and surfing legends to explore this exciting new movement. I'm your host, Chris Klusner. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Beyond the Ocean, my surf park fans. We're here today for the surfing coaching and progression episode with Sunshine Mackerel. Sunshine is a former professional surfer. She's also a marketing guru. She's a senior manager of marketing operations at Thermo Fisher Scientific. And let me tell you what, coaching and surf parks go hand in hand. Sunshine is someone who is quite literally obsessed with progression in the water. She's worked with mindset coaches, paddling coaches. So she's spent a ton of time working on her skills in the water and sees this as a huge opportunity in terms of surf parks, creating more learning and growth and progression opportunities for many more people, especially women. So without further ado, I bring you this wide-ranging conversation with surf progression expert, Miss Sunshine Macaro. Sunshine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Sunshine Macaro here. Uh, stoked to be joining you and talking a little bit more about my surf experience and wave parks. Would love to start and get a brief introduction from you. Please do tell our audience about yourself, your background, and uh, what you do. Started surfing when I was eight years old. I'm going to date myself here. That was back in the glory days of Zuma Beach, uh, Los Angeles County, 1986. Fluorescent neon as far as the eye can see and Zinka and tight clothes. It was a marvelous time. Uh, (laughs) And started uh, hanging out at the beach all day thinking surfing looked pretty fun. So started doing that and always been a big part of my life. Late teens, early 20s, started doing a bit of competition. So did a lot of NSSAs, uh, USSFs, uh, WSAs. Came California's women's champ at one point. Came in second in the nation. The championships over in Hawaii. So did a little bit of competition. Never really make it on the on the pro ranks. Always gave Holly back a run for her money. <laughs> she usually beat me, though. Did that for a bit. Then decided to crack down, finish up college. And as part of my undergrad senior project at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, launched a women's surf magazine, Surf Life for Women. And this was right in the blue crush, like golden age of surfing, 2002. It was fantastic. Just 
so much energy around women's surfing and gave that a, a good run for the money. <laughs> Ultimately, we did close the doors in 2006 on the magazine. And I moved down to San Diego area, started working more in corporate and just surfing a ton for fun, living in Carlsbad and surfing before work, after work, on weekends. That's where I am today. Went back and got my MBA. And now I work at Thermo Fisher Scientific in all kinds of areas, uh, serving science around the world. Right now I'm in our global services and support. It's fantastic, close to home. So I get to surf all the time and uh, get sent all over the world for the company. And occasionally I can uh, sneak in a little surf here and there. So that's always a nice perk. Amazing. And uh, in terms of uh, digging in a little bit more on Surf Life for Women, what was the magazine all about? What kinds of content was included? What kinds of guests did you feature? We'd love to hear a little bit more about that. It was really all about the stoke of surfing. And at that time, Wahini Magazine was already out. And that was a really beautiful magazine, too. It was a bit more of like the art and I feel the spirit of it. And with Surf Life for Women, we really wanted to be core and about the sport. We also included a lot of uh, skateboarding, snowboarding, a lot of health and fitness, but we really approached it. I, I feel like Wahini was a little bit more of the artistic and spiritual side, and we approached it a bit more from the sports, travel, adventure side of it. Wahini actually ended up calling it quits just before we did at the time. Surfer Magazine and Surfing Magazine were also running women's specials from time to time. So we were basically out there like full-time, dedicated, always 100 pages quarterly coming out all about the stoke, the passion, the sport of surfing made by women for women with a lot of help from the men also because we want to be all-inclusive and definitely had a great editor, uh, Brian Dickerson, working with us, helping craft those stories but really to inspire women, put the spotlight on the women and the wonderful things they were doing. And this is a great time with Lane Beachley winning six world titles with uh, Sofia Milanovic coming up. She won her, her world title during that time. That was fantastic to see Peru just go nuts as she did that, came home. Kiela Kenley charging uh, women, getting their first event. Bonsai Betty putting on a pipeline event for the women. Uh, Rochelle Ballard just taking it to the next level. So. And then, you know, just these little groms. I mean, Steph Gilmore and Karina Petroni were just like these little 12-year-old groms coming up at the time. Bethany Hamilton, that's when the incident with her happened. And, you know, she got some wild cards into events. And it was really an exciting time in women's surfing. would love to talk about your relationship with surfing now. And it sounds like you're still incredibly involved in the industry and close with many of sort of main competitors, and you get a lot of water time yourself. How would you describe your relationship with surfing now? In a nutshell, I mean, I can't live without surfing. It's the reason that, that I get up in the morning, and even if I'm not surfing every day, that's definitely what I'm always thinking ahead to. I'm checking the waves every day, whether I can surf or not. Sometimes maybe not till later if I have early morning meetings and I don't want to know that it's firing and I'm missing it. <laughs> um, might not do that. But we're pretty much always thinking about my next session, my next surf trip, my next vacation, uh, where I'm going to get some waves. So 
stay up to date on things. I have a lot of friends that work in the industry. Um, Izzy's a great friend of mine with Surf Diva. She probably keeps me closest to what's going on. And uh, Shelby Stanger doing, uh, she's obviously like all outdoor adventure, but a lot of friends that are still involved there and keep me active. Obviously with Surfline, you're going to see all those articles all the time, kind of keep up with what's going on. I do love watching the contests, but I have to watch out because you say, oh, sweet, like Tatiana and Carissa are going, I'll watch that heat. And then you're like, oh, wait, Gilmore's up next. Like, I got to watch that one. You're like, oh, wait, Lakey. And then before you know it, what was going to be a half hour diversion becomes three hours and and I'm way behind on my work. So (laughs) as much as I love to watch the contest, I have to like pull back a little bit because before you know it, the day's day's half gone. So love to stay involved with, with what's going on. And and more importantly, for me, it's it's a little bit less about the industry and the competition. That's a point of interest, but just getting out there and enjoying myself in the water and improving. I'm a big fan of anything I'm doing. I always want to be improving. So whether that's like my professional career and that continuous improvement and development or my health and fitness, whether it's you know surfing and being able to paddle faster, catch more waves get better flow, do better turns, or anything you're doing uh, running. Let's say you always want to improve your speed, how fast you're running a mile. So I'm a big fan of if you're doing something, you want to be improving yourself at it, not to get stale and, and just boring with it. It makes complete sense. And uh, I can appreciate that mindset. You've done a ton of coaching and personal growth, especially related to surfing. And I was hoping you could share with our listeners some of the many coaches you've worked with over the years and how they all stand out and are unique and really what stood out to you as some of the most important elements for coaching in a surf context. I, you know, working with coaches, I wish that when I was competing, I had known about these folks because might have been a different story with what happened. When I was on the U.S. amateur team, we, we had some coaching, but it's nowhere near what the team now has. It's kind of get together and go to some competitions, but not this full training program. So first exposed back then when I was about 20, 21 years old, and then for about 10 years or so, didn't really have much going on with coaches and then revived it when actually my cousin's. We're going down to Costa Rica, said, hey, why don't you come with a trip down with us? We go, we hang out with Jim Hogan. He takes photos and gives us some coaching as well as just driving around, showing us what's up and went down there. And if you don't know Jim Hogan, he's one of those classic guys from the 80s, like just like body glove 80s to a T. When I mentioned I, I learned surfing in 1986, he would be like one of the guys on my wall in those neon posters and those kind of glory days and classic, always pulling pranks and jokes on you. But he really knows his stuff when it comes to surfing. And what he'll do is he'll set up and take photos and just sequence, 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 which he likes a lot better than video because then you don't have to like stop it and go frame by frame. You already have that. You as a visitor down to his camp, to his experience in Costa Rica, You get your glory shot that you can put on the wall. Like, oh, that frame's kind of weak, not really throwing spray, kind of catching an edge. Oh, that's the one. That's the one. I'm going to blow that up, put that on the wall. But then he'll give you analysis during it. He's like, all right, well, you started your turn a little bit too late. It's 
kind of coming okay here, but then like you got your back arm like up in the air, like you're waving at a concert, like you need to get that down across your body and, and it'll start just like rattling all this off to you. And it can be a bit overwhelming because <laughs> you're there and you're like, oh man, I thought I killed it on that wave. And then you start getting all this analysis, but it's coming from a place to help you improve. And I mean, you can take it or leave it. And in the moment when you're there, generally you go on these trips, you're there for a week or two and you're like, oh, being over flooded with all this information coming in and what do I actually work on? A couple big takeaways I had from him is number one, the back arm, especially front side turns. Oh my God. It's like, yeah, like throw your hands in the air. Like you just don't care. Not so much for surfing. Really wanted to cross almost like your arms coming across your body. Like you're checking your watch on your wrist. Uh, what time is it? You know, that's really where you're going to get that rotation and power in your turns because it's not about having like the biggest thigh muscles and going into these turns, but having that right technique to use your full body in it. So that was probably the biggest takeaway there. And then the second thing is, like I said, Jim's quite honest and, and abrupt sometimes. So he told me that I paddled slower than his grandma and his grandma was dead. So he'd be like, you paddle slower than my dead grandma. So I'm like, but I'm paddling as fast as I can. Like literally like I'm probably look like a cartoon character, like arms going in these little like circles, but it just wasn't really working. And he didn't really know how to improve that. He's kind of more the on the wave, riding the wave guy. So I kind of filed that away. Okay, I'm paddling slow. Don't really know why, because I'm paddling as fast as I can, but slow. So kind of filed that away. <laughs> and a few years later, I was just doing some, well, actually I had done some like YouTube searches of like, you know, paddling technique, how to paddle faster. And I started seeing this one guy, Rob Case. And he had this online surfing paddling academy which looked like a lot of pool training and workouts. And I'm like, mm, I don't know if I really want to do that. But, you know, kind of kept it on the radar, signed up for his email list. And then saw when he actually had this whole weekend workshop at his place up near San Francisco on the back bay there. So it was this whole workshop where you go and basically have your paddling technique analyzed and then do a lot of flat water work to work on the exact mechanics that are hindering you, as well as a little bit of surfing as well. But the main gist of it was the paddling. So went up there, he had one of those infinity pools where you jump in and the current starts going <laughs> for basically for a minute and a half. He like puts it up and like, you're going as fast as you can go. And he's recording you. And then he starts analyzing, breaks down, like there, there are certain things that people do wrong. Not everyone does everything wrong, but where exactly you're going off track. And, and then he'll start giving you drills to fix what it is. So a lot of times it might be like you're overreaching. So you're using more of your shoulder rather than your lats and your full body. Or you could be um, like not coming in, like you could be side swiping, which is going to not under the board, which is going to make that you're not getting the full effect of like using your arm like an oar or paddle and really pushing back and where you're going to get the maximum technique. So in that minute and a half, I probably did twice as many strokes as the guys to stay in the same place, but it's because I didn't have good technique. Really over the next three days, focused on that technique and the drill so that I could be more effective. 
actually ended up doing a second workshop with him when he came down to San Diego at the, the Mission Bay Aquatic Center, and then went on a trip with him to Indonesia <laughs> to work on more paddling and positioning. So I feel like over time, my paddling has improved immensely. And he could probably give you the metrics because he does like this really fancy hookup where he puts on like what Olympic swimmers will use. He'll put that on you to measure like your average speed, your maximum speed, your power, videotape above and below water to see your technique. And he'll be able to compare those readings from each time you worked with him and give you that. I think that first workshop, my paddling improved like 23%. Just how much effort, you know, that same minute and a half at the end versus the beginning where I got there. So love working with him because it ultimately comes down to when you're paddling for waves, like if you don't have the right technique and positioning, you're going to miss the waves and it's all about the reps. So if you're missing waves, yeah, it all comes down to it. So grateful to Jim Hogan (laughs) for identifying that problem and then for Rob for helping me with it. Last coach I'll mention is I did go on a women's uh, boat trip, surf trip to the Maldives a few years ago, worked with this great coach, Yvonne, who I'm not even going to try to say his last name, a great guy from the Canary Islands, runs Elite Surf Academy, and he's more, more, more the technique. So with him too, it was really smoothing out my surfing. So I do a lot of setup, like one, two turns, and I thought I was being awesome, like Tom Curran at Honolulu Bay or something like, but then I saw it on video and he's like, why are you doing that? You're killing your speed. Focus on just being smooth, like one big long turn, come up and do that. So really focused on that in the Maldives. And it's a whole different, you know, when you're talking reef waves like that, and you have this whole playground to set up these turns and do it, it becomes a whole different ball game. And so actually from him, worked on that and not only smoothing out my surfing, went to be more of a quad surfer rather than a thruster, which pretty much my whole life I had been, and also worked on some different fin setups. Three different coaches, totally pinpointed in different areas. And from here, I mean, still really want to work on the positioning and there's always mechanics. And that's why I just can't wait to get out to some of these wave parks and really isolate. I've never really gotten barrels cracked. And and to have a wave park where I can really focus on, okay, coming off the bottom and pulling in or pulling in a takeoff and holding that line. Because a lot of times at beach breaks, it's so finicky. Like you pull in and like, I don't know, you're probably pulling out the back or getting crunched just because you don't really know how to set that line. It's so quick and iffy. And then you get to reef breaks. And if you only go to somewhere like the Maldives or Indo once every two or three years, kind of a little scared to pull in sometimes. So, I mean, I think it'd be fantastic next up to get to some of these wave parks and really focus on on that barrel technique and being able to not only pull in, but stay in and really hold that line and actually like ride the barrel. That's so cool and inspiring. And as someone who's been surfing for 20 years and I just landed my first air two days ago, actually. It was the tiniest little thing, but it was literally my brother, coaching me, watching from the beach, taking video, pointing out the flaws. And wow, wouldn't you know, in an hour of actively trying, I improved it. Similar to the paddling thing, I my wife is a surfer, but also was a varsity swimmer. And she was smoking me in the pool. I, I thought my paddling was so good. And I realized, wow, I'm overreaching and I'm not even using my legs. I'm a tall person. Like, why not use, Phelps uses his legs. 
so inspiring to hear how you've sort of broken down your surfing into all those subcomponents and really just focused on improvement of those things. And it's been many years in the works. So I think that um, might also be eye-opening for folks to hear about how long it takes to get really good at surfing. And I'm still trying to get really good. It takes a long time, but I think surf parks, and to your point, I'd love to jump to your views on surf parks sort of in general. like, And then more specifically, if you've visited, I understand you've uh, spent some time in the one in Orlando, haven't spent too much time in some of the newer parks, but we've talked a lot about surf parks in general as a coaching hotbed. You know, it's a place where you can really start to accelerate the timelines for this kind of stuff and maybe not have to fly to the other side of the planet and get on a boat and, you know, go through all this to do it. So I'd love to hear from your perspective, you know, what's so exciting about surf parks from a coaching perspective and any experiences you can share that you've had? I see it as being just the ultimate training ground. In any sport, I mean, you've got like, if you play baseball, you jump in the batting cage. If you play golf, you go to the driving range. I mean, even skateboarding, they've got places like, I think it's the Woodward Camp, where you go and there's like all these foam pits and trampolines. And you break it down to each element that you're trying to do and really focus on the mechanics. And with surfing, that can be hard because even if you get to a really good wave, Yeah, you've got to get there. There's got to be swell. (laughs) And then there's the crowd element of waiting your turn. And there's just so many unknowns when you're going out there and you're trying to train versus if you have a wave park, you can go and you can know that there's going to be waves. You're going to get your reps in. It doesn't matter. Um, Like you could show up at the Maldives and you're like, sweet, pull up. It's firing six foot jump out there and then three other boats pull up. And now you went from, you know, catching 10 waves an hour to like two waves an hour. And it's real hard to improve when worrying about jockeying for positioning. And then, yeah, if you do catch a wave, maybe you don't try different things because it's a very precious commodity now. Versus if you go to the wave park, you know, and you can really break it down and focus too. Almost like you would with skateboarding and a ramp of like, hey, today I'm just going to work on my front side top turns. And you can go out and just specifically focus on that. It's really interesting. You hear this term muscle memory and what it actually is. I've been reading this book called The Talent Code. It's myelin, M-Y-E-L-I-N. It's the sheath that goes around your neurons. So motions that you do very often, it wraps around those neurons so that they go faster. And you can kind of know, like if you're doing something you've never done before, it's very awkward or something you don't do very often versus like when you get that quote muscle memory, it's actually that the neurons have been quote uh, coded with this myelin so they can fire faster. Almost like you don't have to think it's that second nature. And that's what you really want to do with anything you're trying to get better at. And that's why you break it down. Even like the batting cage, like you might sit there and just be like, okay, Now for the next 50 pitches, I'm just going to focus on bunting or now I'm going to swing away or I'm going to try to hit it to right field or to left field. And you can do that with wave parks now and with the variety of waves. I mean, I've seen at Waco where they'll set it up. Okay, like let's work on the airs or let's work on the barrels or give me a nice section to hit and you can just get your mechanics and then you can, yeah, keep watching it on replay so you can just go back and get that whole mental note. And it's not like, okay, we got to come in, like get some lunch, wait till the tide's right. Or the swell comes back up. Like you can just be right back out there and focusing on and breaking it down 
into those components where also too, if you're in the ocean, it might be like, okay, you know, you're working on the full wave and whatnot, but the wave park, you could really just break it down into each of those little areas that you want to build on and take basically then your training and your advancement. I mean, you could amplify that, I mean, exponentially in terms of how fast you can improve. Yeah, the consistency and the ability to just learn something, try it, get out, try it again, try it again, instead of waiting on the tides, waiting on the swell, waiting on the conditions and jockeying for waves. Yeah, makes so much sense. You visited a surf park. It's been quite a long time since then, but it was uh, Typhoon Lagoon, right? Typhoon Lagoon, yeah. It was 1999. And I think at that time in the world, there was three maybe a half dozen wave parks total. Like obviously the the one in Arizona where Rick Kane came from before, you know, he went to Hawaii and won the pipe masters or came in second. Um, <laughs> but I believe there was Typhoon Lagoon. There was one in Japan under some dome where they were doing like incredible shows, but it was very rare at that time. So we did as part of the U S amateur team, uh, Disney was kind enough to invite us to come out for a few hour training one night and it was winter time. <laughs> I think it was like January, February kind of time frame, and a nor'easter was coming down the coast, <laughs> which meant that it was cold and windy. <laughs> so here we are in Orlando. The water, I mean, the pool water is like 85 degrees, beautiful, nice. We're all putting on wetsuits because <laughs> we're standing there in like rain coming down at a 45 degree angle, wind whipping around, and the whole team's waiting for their jump in for your turn. And there was about 20 of us there. I can't remember how many waves came. It was probably like every two minutes there was a wave. So you're sitting there waiting, waiting, waiting. And then when it's your turn, you jump in. And they did do the left, the right, and the split peak in the middle. Now, if you're doing the left or the right, you basically jump in and hang out right next to the wall. And if you go to split peak, you paddle over to the center. But in all cases, then you stare at the wall which is about 20 yards in front of you. So you're staring at this wall, like you would stare at the horizon, but then you hear this boom, and then you have to start turn and start paddling. But it's very hard to know how fast to paddle because in the ocean, you're used to tracking it from out on the horizon and you're watching it. A lot of times, like you might paddle out a little bit towards it first and then decide to go right or left or in. But yeah, you're kind of tracking it the whole way, almost like in baseball with a fly ball. You know, if you're playing outfield, you'll take a look, take a step back first and then decide, am I going to, where am I going to go to catch this? I'll say with the waves. So I jumped in for the left and I don't remember if this was my first wave, but it was the first wave on the left and boom, turn and start paddling, paddled a little too far, misjudged it, wave broke on my back. And as happens when the wave breaks on your back. You kind of get tossed, ass over tea kettle there. And I just remember I'm like, oh, I'm like three feet from the wall. And I'm like kind of starfishing, hoping that me or my board doesn't smack into the side of the wall, which was bad enough. But then, you know, there's the whole embarrassment of like, oh, great. The whole team just watched me like misjudge this wave and get smacked. And now my turn's over too. So I got to paddle the rest of the way in, tail between my legs, get to the back of the line to wait for the next one. Luckily, that was the only one I totally botched. The split peak was pretty fun. But yeah, it just, it took a while. So some of the kids on the team that were from Florida had been there before and they were, you know, up and riding right away, busting errors on the inside section. 
But yeah, it definitely took me a few waves to really get the hang of it. Great experience though, and was always looking forward to the chance to get back out. And when I saw the garden, the wave garden really coming up and the R&D area right in the Basque Coast, I was so fascinated and saw that first one go in at Surf Sinodonia. I was like, started going like, oh, I might have to go to England, might have to check this out. Started looking into it, then saw Inland. And I was actually about to go there right in between jobs. I had some uh, time off and was just about to book. And then that's when they shut down for the cleaning. And so I was like, ah, that's not happening. And then, yeah, kind of had my eye on Waco. And especially with with all these lockdowns going on, been like, I just want to get out somewhere and do a trip. So really want to get out there and try one of these wave pools, especially like the Waco one just looks amazing. And of course, I mean, Kelly Slater wave pool would just be a dream, but I got a pretty good job at Thermo Fisher, but not quite enough for, uh, I mean, that's kind of like private jet status to, you know, anyone can afford that too good on you. I wish I was there with you. So (laughs) I'm really looking forward to trying out some of these other wave parks, but not just yet. It is pretty incredible to see difference in pricing from the Kelly pool the Kelly Slater Surf Ranch to BSR Surf Resort in Waco. And I was looking this weekend and it's 90 bucks an hour. You can just book appointments right now. You can just fly to Waco, book your hour. I don't know how many waves an hour you get. We've had a bunch of guests that have spent a lot of time at BSR and were part of the early team that helped to set it up there. But I think it's like 10 to 20 waves an hour. So for 90 bucks, you can go get your you know, 15, 20 waves and leave. It's pretty exciting, and it's. Um, I think more and more people are going to start to think of Waco as a surf destination. For that reason alone, you get to go get a whole bunch of waves in a short, compressed amount of time and work on something like airs or turns or what have you. So you felt that feeling of being in a wave park and a surf pool and like having people watch you and fall and that that feeling and we have heard from other guests that the experience at the surf ranch the kelly slater pool may not be the most conducive to learning because there's a really long or when i say really long four minute or so wait between waves but there's a bit of a scarcity to the waves if you fall you feel like you lost your turn like you mentioned one of your coaches has been to the surf ranch and only had a few waves himself so If you were to speak to some of the surf park operators, developers, investors, the people that are involved with running these parks, what do you think are some of the design elements of that customer experience that the people in the pool, how can they make that as comfortable and fun and conducive to learning as possible so people want to keep coming back? I think it it varies so much. And this is almost, you know, to put my marketing hat on where you kind of get into persona marketing and what's going on. So if you've got your up and coming professionals, you got people there for training, they're good. They're doing what they're going to do. They're going to focus in. For instance, when we were on the panel at the Wave Park Summit, Sierra Kerr had that great idea of having that instant replay on a big screen. So when you're paddling back out, or when you're you're kind of like running around, I'm not sure how the setup is everywhere, but you can watch it and kind of like make that that mental note real time of like, okay, I was like pumping down the line, setting up for the air section, but I started a little bit low and then I went to launch like a half second too late. 
And you can start making those like real time adjustments for like your high quality training like that. I think it's pretty much a few little tweaks and you could be really in a fantastic place. If it's more beginners ramping up, so let's say advanced beginners, I think that's where you're going to get a lot more of the, I don't want to say embarrassment, but like self-confidence and, you know, kind of not wanting to be in the arena. If you're talking like, you know, people wanting like these up and coming pros, like they want to be watched, (laughs) they're like, how about it? You know, but yeah, a lot of people might be kind of like embarrassed if they fall. Yeah, there can be some, some differences in there in terms of not making them feel like center stage. And if they fall, then everyone's mocking them. It could be pretty interesting, different setups there. And and maybe it's different groups in the pools at different times or different options where, hey, you can check, can people watch during this session or is it not a open viewing? And, you know, actually, gosh, down the line, that's actually a really interesting point that some of these trainings, they might even want to make private because kind of almost if you're a football team, right? You wouldn't want the competitors to watch you practice. So some of these kids might want to, yeah, lock it up a little bit. But yeah, I think that there's a lot that parks can do to cater towards your different clientele. It is, yeah, personas and different groups are going to have different needs and all about finding out what your most profitable market segment is and making sure that that you're delivering for them and, you know, filling in there because, yeah, the most profitable might only be interested in, you know, X amount of time, but then here's your long tail and what are the long tail customers more interested in? And and you're just varying your offering accordingly for your different groups. That opportunity to improve and work with a coach is what is pretty, pretty unique and special about these wave parks. I think it can actually work both ways where you do have your on-staff coaches kind of always there. And then your special event coaching as well to just bring in even more. And it could even be Shane Beshin's coming in for an air specialty camp. And then that drives more people to the camp for that week. But, you know, there's the always, always on coaching and the staff uh, would be there. I think a lot of people, if you're going to a wave park, it's not just for fun and to get some waves, but it is to improve. And I think having that as an option just takes the wave park offering to the next level rather than just like, there you go, jump in the pool, have at it. You know, you can let people do that and work on their own thing. But at the same point, it's like, hey, you want to sign up for a coaching package with that? Yeah, we've heard from other guests as well that there is actually a challenge with people who opt into the advanced class and are actually beginner or intermediate, which does tend to negatively impact the experience for the other guests. There's definitely a really important step of figuring out what people are ready to jump in the pool and handle because there's a lot of people that want their turn. So anyway, I think that that'll be interesting as some of the newest parks start to scale up and invite more guests, how they manage who gets to go in which session and how coaching fits in. You'd mentioned the summit that would be a reference back to the surf park summit, which we run every year and you were kind enough to join us this year. And We had an incredible panel discussion. I'd love to have you give a bit of a recap of that panel discussion and then some of the market research we collected for that session. Could you give us an overview of what that talk was about, who was involved, and what that research looked like? And the park 
the summit was just absolute incredible experience. Can't wait to check out the full recording of it. And so pleased to be there. So we did do a panel discussion with women uh, surfing. So what women want in a surf park. And we did have multiple age ranges present there. Basically, it was, you know, not only what we've experienced firsthand and are looking for, but we did a big market research study as well to kind of go out abroad beyond just like our N of four of us on the panel. We did do the survey to uh, women surfing groups that we're involved with. We had uh, 76 responses. And this was a globally distributed survey and women of all ages and abilities. So pretty broad based. And a couple of highlights from it is we were really curious too of how people learned how to surf. Uh, these women, 37% of them had actually lived on their, learned how to surf on their own. 21% had already been to a wave park, which I thought was pretty fantastic uh, number there. And especially since, I mean, in the past few years, there's a lot opening up, but it's been a fairly recent phenomena. And 97% of them viewed surf parks as a great place to enhance their skills. Again, with the coaching, like, and that improvement, it really boils up as a huge value prop for them. So jumping in a little bit, we asked them how they learned how to surf. Like, you know, if someone had taught them but also what motivated them to start surfing. And really for the vast majority of them, it was a love of the ocean and nature and that it looked fun. So I think a couple of key takeaways we had from this were that nature element is very important, that people aren't really interested in pool or a water park in terms of like wet and wild water park. They really wanted that nature, the trees, the beaches, uh, really that natural experience that that and connecting with nature was a big piece. And then also the fun. This is about uh, women. Um, I don't know if it would be different if we ran this with men, if it would be more of challenge and a conquest could be, might not be. But with the women, it just, I think the fun and the joy is what really spoke to them. With surf parks, um, knowing that any marketing that you create geared towards women is to really play up that fun angle and also um, the natural experience. And I know so many of these parks have done such an amazing job just creating that landscaping and that feeling of this is not just your wet and wild water park. This is a great experience. We did also ask in the survey about safety concerns. And there were definitely some concerns about, you know, hitting the side of the pools or hitting the bottom and it being shallow. Some people, you know, concerned with, you know, just cutting up their feet or hitting their head. Uh, but the most common was about water quality, which I found really interesting. Obviously, there was that one tragic event that, that happened in Texas. And I think that that has just almost become a burn into everyone's mind. And, you know, it's a one tragic experience, but it kind of everyone goes back to that. So I think a lot of concerns over just the cleanliness of the water, a lot of comments about like bacteria and amoeba and really focusing on there. So I know at the, the, the summit, there was a whole panel on water quality and a lot of folks on um, these different parks do have officers just about water quality and safety. So 
I think that's really important in marketing towards women is to call out the safety and the water quality and that it is a concern that is top of mind for the parks themselves. Interestingly, on that same note, we ran this survey in September. So good. I don't even know how long it's been now. Let's just say five, six months into uh, this global pandemic of COVID. And no one mentioned any concerns about that. That's pretty good. That doesn't seem to come up as a concern. But on that same note, I think we can take what we've seen other companies doing in talking about safety, for instance, the airlines or hotels, and talking about how you know the HIPAA air filtration system and how there's hand sanitizer everywhere and things being wiped down. Just those proactive messages about what companies are doing to keep you safe. And some of those might be applicable then to just you know marketing what you're doing to have keep your water quality up to standard and how great the water actually is. So I think a lot of interesting lessons there on, on the safety. And then we jumped into more fun stuff. And we asked a question, and I, and I do love asking this every time I do market research. Imagine you have a magic wand. What would you change or what would you do with that magic wand to make the surf park the ultimate experience? And so at this point, we're going beyond the waves and just, you know, that ultimate experience. And really time and time again, we did see a lot of food. <laughs> and I think anytime you go on a surf trip, right, you always want to know about the food and you see this, uh, these resorts in Mexico, Indonesia, they always post pictures, not only the waves, but of these like massive lobster dinners and fish and just goodness. So after a good day of surfing, you want a good meal. And people mentioned everything from healthy options to like make your own, having like a grocery store on site and barbecue pits to where they can do their own, like budget options to high-end date night options. So really like a big variety there. Also can't get away from the acai bowls. <laughs> that came up, I don't know how many times, but seemed to be a very common request. So other than the food and the waves, obviously women focused on the temperature, which any of you out there have a wife, a girlfriend, daughters, you'll know how miserable it is for women when we're cold, <laughs> especially when we're wet and cold. It's just not going to be pleasant for anyone. They had mentioned things, um, and obviously heating the pool itself could be very costly, and, and I don't even know if that's possible in some cases. But having not only like hot tubs available after, hot showers, um, even like heat lamps when you're waiting to get in the pool, kind of like, you know, when you're at an outdoor event, uh, outdoor dining, those patio heaters, that, having a sauna room, but basically those chances to get warm again <laughs> and also easily dry your wetsuit and, and anything else. So warmth, heat, <laughs> big factor there, as well as uh, things like at the gym, you know, private locker rooms, places that blow dry your hair, get changed, things like that. For the women, another big takeaway was having childcare. Because a lot of times they could be coming if it's a family event or if it's a single mom, they've got the kids with them. And the only way they're going to get some waves is um, if someone's watching the kids. And it's nice to have the kids' activities too, like the kiddie pools and maybe even some lessons for kids. But I mean, just somewhere that, hey, mom's got her hour lesson book now. We drop the kids off at the child care center. I'll go for the lesson, then come back and I'll get uh, lunch together. I've seen this a lot at gyms too, where 
I go to EOS Fitness. And yeah, if it weren't for the childcare there, a lot of people want to get their workout in. So really interesting insight there. Final kind of piece here, uh, we kind of touched down before the landscaping and the nature experience. I mean, people wanted to Know, feel like they're at a tropical oasis, make this feel like this is an actual vacation and maybe some little beach areas with hammocks. Everyone likes a nice nap. And then other activities related to health and fitness. So for instance, if there's gym with doing um, surf specific training, if there's yoga and Pilates, but really creating that, that entire experience so that you are going there, not just for your hour session, but it is a destination of itself and, and all these other elements to make it a true vacation. The other piece that we had asked if people had been to other surf camps and resorts and what they liked best about that aside from the surfing. And the biggest piece, even bigger than food, when you go to these camps is the chance to make new friends. I think if anyone's uh, been that, if you've been to Tavarua for a week, if you've been to a, a resort down in El Salvador and you're there, 20, 30 other people, and you're eating all your meals together, you're surfing together, you create these like bonds of friendship that you stay in touch with them. You might schedule future trips together, but it's just a chance to get to know people that you never would have met otherwise. And so I think with uh, Wave Park, creating that chance for that connection so especially if it is signing up for, you know, not just coming in and doing your one hour session, but, you know, if you're selling packages and making it a weekend deal, a week deal, that chance to build those connections and friendships are really a value add to the women's market. The other piece that they were very concerned with, and you kind of touched on it before in saying like, oh, how do we know, you know, do we put this person in the advanced session or the intermediate section, but tying in with that is the crowd limits and the etiquette briefings. Because a lot of folks, I mean, out in the ocean, you just get so frustrated with there's those wave hogs that are just taking off on everything and don't ever take turns. Or there's like the clueless beginners on the inside that are getting in everyone's way. People that are paddling back out and like get in your way on the shoulder rather than duck diving the white water. So really a lot of concerns over making sure that etiquette rules are followed, that they're briefed on and followed, and that there are crowd limits and those rules are respected. Every park has these crowd rules in effect. Like you're not just letting a thousand people sign up for this one hour session. Like you're saying, okay, 10 people can sign up, but really publicizing that and letting people know that they're going to be getting these precious waves they paid for, that it's not like paddling out at swamis and you may get away if you may not, you are going to get your waves. <laughs> so those were my, were my big takeaways from the survey that we presented at the summit and really rich dialogue around it as well. Well, thank you for that recap. And there is just some gold in there. And I'm sure many of our partners and listeners that are involved with surf park operations and development will be paying close attention to that. So thank you for that. We are going to make the presentation, the, the slides and some of the takeaways from the data available to listeners. So you'll see some of that in the show notes. You'll be able to click through. And while you can't watch the whole presentation unless you sign up for the Surf Park Insiders program, you can at least check out some of the data and see some clips from the event. So thank you for that. What was your most memorable surfing experience? Where were you? Who were you with? And what made it so memorable? One of the first ones that comes to my mind, I think it was around 2001, 
was just before the magazine launched. We were over in Maui. So in Blue Crush, the movie came out based on an article about two surfer girls in Maui, Lilia and Teresa. And I feel, I don't know if it was like Sports Illustrated. It was some more mainstream publication, not a surf publication. Writer came out, girls, Lilia and Teresa, like 14, 15 years old, did this whole profile story on them. Now, Blue Crush, like all things Hollywood, right? Like totally went, became this girl dating this like football player, totally different story. But anyways, we went to Maui to stay on Lilia's family's organic farm to get like the story behind the story since Blue Crush was coming out. And we went to this uh, break near her house, Maui, near Hana. I think the beach was called Hamoa. And this like nice little right cove. The girls were out and there was a few other people out and just taking turns, catching wave after wave. And I remember just being out there like kind of frustrated. And, you know, I was the publisher of the magazine over there, brought the photographer out. She was up on the, the bluff, still photography going away, getting some good shots of Lily and Teresa. And, you know, set came in. I'm like, go, go, go uh, to each of the girls. And then one wave at the end came in. I was in position. No one else was around. I just got this beautiful gem of a right did like two good turns on the outside got to the inside section and it actually started to barrel and I pulled in got a little cover up came out and I'm just like looking up at the photographer Deb Colvin up on the cliff and I'm like looking at her like did you get that and you know she gives me the thumbs up and I was just like so stoked because I never had a barrel picture before and I mean like it's a pretty small barrel, but it was just that moment of like being over there and yeah, like getting each of those girls into a good wave. And then like, yeah, Deb actually getting me that shot. And and I remember for Christmas that year, she had blown, um, this is like back still in like slide photography, right? So she had actually taken like the three shot sequence of like setting up for the barrel and like printed out three of those and framed them and gave them to Christmas for me that year. But that was just, um, you know, that whole trip to launch the magazine, being over at that organic farm and getting that one way with the little barrel at the end. That's, that's definitely one that stands out. Wow, that's just a great story. And I felt like I was right in the barrel with you there. And uh, also nice to know that Blue Crush isn't totally uh, pulled out of thin air. And there is at least some strong surfing backbone to that. It's so awesome to hear about. Thank you so much for taking the time for this. This was so much fun. Sunshine, if folks want to learn more about you or reach out or follow along, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably just my Instagram, which is at sunshine underscore macro. And it's just kind of my life. So I got my surf trips on there, but also just got my work, my family, my pets. So it's a little bit of everything, but feel free to follow along anybody that has a wave park out there that I'd love to check out your wave park and let me know about it. So <laughs> ping me on there or uh, email me directly. And I'm always looking for my next trip, my next adventure. And I love that these wave parks are popping up all over the place. Um, especially in Texas, we, we go to Texas for work all the time. So I'm like, Ooh, I'm actually going to be excited about the next time we have a convention in Dallas. I can go there. Actually been talking, my friend just moved to Texas and like, I'm gonna have to come visit you in about a year and just do a Texas wave park tour and, and hit everything that's open at that time. Cause you want to really think of Texas surf safari, but 
sounding pretty good nowadays. So I'm always clean, um, get some waves wherever I am and just have a fun experience and, you know, if possible, improve my skills too. Always looking for that. That sounds like a plan to me and I'm right there with you. So I think we should get this going. For now, thank you so much and uh, really appreciate your time and have a great rest of your day. Fantastic. Thanks, you too. Hey everyone, here's Chris again. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. For those of you who want more information on surf parks and the topics covered in these episodes, Surf Park Central's Insider Membership might be for you. Insiders are people serious about surf parks and the organizations they represent. You can join Insiders for a monthly membership fee and rewatch all the surf park summits that have ever happened. You can get transcripts, access to research reports and white papers, even see webinars with special guests like those who visit us on this podcast. So check out surfparkcentral.com slash insiders to learn more about this exclusive professional community for surf parks. Check it out, surfparkcentral.com. Thanks for listening, guys. This is Chris Klusner again, just with a few last-minute thoughts. Please do check out our website, beyondoceanpodcast.com, to subscribe to our newsletter and get exclusive updates from your local surf parks and out-of-ocean surfing experiences near you. You can also learn more about our sponsors and the incredible guests we host on the show You can also access show notes and links. Anything that's covered in the podcast will be featured on the website. Again, it's beyondoceanpodcast.com. Check it out.